I want to introduce you to a friend of mine. I don't think anybody in this room has had a privilege of meeting yet, uh, so it's kind of a special day for us all. But I'm going to introduce you to uh, Hannibal Schaffner. Hannibal, this is my dog. Well, it was my dog. Some 14 years ago, uh, I, uh, I had a St. Bernard, and we acquired him from an owner who uh, had him as a puppy, and uh, as a puppy, he was almost a year old and 85 pounds, clearly a lap dog, and uh, when we got him, well, they began to give us some instructions about how to best handle him, how, what he was trained for, what he had the ability to do, and one of the things that uh, Hannibal was trained to be was a, a house dog, Okay. Now, you may not know this, but St. Bernard's are genuinely gentle, right? And, and hairy, right? And, and so some of you who are guests are like, hey, is this like one of these things where the pastor looks like the dog? No, no, we're not, we're not doing that. But the reality was that Hannibal had this crazy experience that he was raised to believe that um, he had a designated space that he should sleep in. And what his owner taught him was that there was back by the laundry room an area where in front of the washer and dryer, you could put like a card table. You could slide it out in front of him. And as a puppy, he couldn't seem to move the card table. It was just kind of just there. And so from a little guy to a bigger guy to a really big guy, he kind of grew up with this card table keeping him penned in. So we took Hannibal home, and this is uh, Hannibal when he's about two years old. He's 145 pounds, and um, it was a pretty incredible day for him. We put him in his room, and uh, we went back to our laundry room, and we did the same thing that they did. He, we got him back there, and he kind of stands there looking at us, and we pull out this card table, and he kind of looks at me like, not, not you too, really? Is this what we're going to do? And so I pull out the card table, and we kind of set it in place, and he just lays down, somewhat sad, somewhat frustrated, but he eventually goes to sleep. Well, as time goes on, this dog gets horse-like. Can we say that? I mean, he's huge. And I remember one night, Christy walks uh, Hannibal back to his area and says, let's go, to, let's go to bed, Hannibal. And he goes in, and he stands in his spot, and Christy moves this card table in front of him. And then she comes walking out, and she's just kind of shaking her head. And she's like, this, this, this is just ridiculous. Our dog is over 145 pounds. It's like a horse. It can almost, at this point, see over the card table. But as soon as you pull that card table out, all of his will, all of his might, everything that makes him the, the huge, ferocious animal that he is, wilts away. Because it's the card table. It can't be moved. And she goes, you know, he... If he wanted to, he could, he could lean into it. He could probably breathe into it and knock it over. And, and even if he didn't like that, he could probably jump over it. But he doesn't. He's blocked. He's trapped. He can't seem to overcome this obstacle. Now, I think this is a great place for us to start because some of us have grown up in a world that people have pulled out card tables in front of us and we grew up thinking we can't overcome them. Our personal value, the things we think about ourselves, the way we interact in conflict, the way we handle interpersonal relationships, for many of us become these card tables that get pulled out in front of us. And because we've never had the confidence, we've never had the power, we've never had the strength to begin to address those, we just simply stand there, watch the card table pull out, and we lay down. But it doesn't have to be that way. 
And maybe that's what we really want to talk about for the next four weeks is this issue we want to call mastermind. It's a series to kind of change the way that we think. And we are all at war with thoughts in our minds, ideologies of this world, trying to frame how we look at who we were, who we are, and who we are going to be. And there's this underlying piece that we're going to try and unpack over the next four weeks, and it's this. That your life is always heading in the direction of your strongest thoughts. I want you to think about that for a moment. Your life is always heading in the direction of your strongest thoughts. And so as you think about the battlefield of your mind, whether you are someone who follows after Jesus whether this is your first time to begin to engage what Easter's about, whether you have no uh, interest at all in Jesus at all, we know this to be true, that the way we think impacts how we live. And our strongest thoughts overcome and drive the very reactions on how we approach the workings around us. So what we want to do is we want to begin to address how do we begin to have a healthy mindset. Now let's start here. Let's start with our current experiences, okay? Now everybody has a current experience that you walk into. Let's say after you get done today, um, I'll just throw this place out. You decide to go to eat at Billy Baroos. Now some of you may notice I'm a big fan of Billy Baroos. You know what I'm saying? So now when some of us walk into Billy Brews, we walk in and maybe we see a bartender, maybe we see a host or hostess, maybe we see a cook, maybe we see a friend, maybe we see a not so friend. And the, by what we see and past experiences that we've had at that beloved restaurant may shape whether we stay or whether we go, right? Okay. Because our current experiences are always impacted by our past experiences, Right? Whether they're positive or whether they're negative, every moment that we step into, some of you came back to church today and you are reframing what you think about church or maybe even what you think about this building and the people that you're a part of. You're taking past experiences and beginning to impact your current experience right now. So think about this for a moment. We can have positive and we can have negative experiences. Now, Positive experiences are needed for confidence, and negative experiences, they're needed so that we maybe protect ourselves, like a, like a hot stove or whatever. But when too much positive comes into our life, like the, like the guy who can't quit living his high school years and moving beyond them, we get rose-colored glasses, right? We get rose-colored glasses that we look back at our past, it's almost mythical in proportion, you know? I may resemble this when I talk about my mullet, you know what I'm saying? But when we get too negative... Our negative begins to really impact where we've been. And we begin to experience what we call a vicious cycle. And some of you know what I'm talking about. It becomes a habit. It becomes a rut. It becomes something in your life that you can't seem to get out of, and it seems to block you in. Now, I'm going to do a quick exercise, and I'm just going to give you a list of things that I want you to think about, whether you think of them positively or negatively. We're not going to have you raise your hands, but I want you to score it in your head. Here's what it is. Here's some words we want you to hear. Your future, positive or negative. Money, positive or negative. Your career, positive or negative. Appearance, positive 
or negative. Health, marriage, children. Now, these are just words, right? Thank goodness none of you had a completely visceral reaction to any of them, right? Especially all the parents in the room when we said children, none of us, none of us began to twitch. But the truth of the matter is, these words, when conjured up in the way that we think, usually have a negative or a positive experience. And so what we want to do for the next few weeks is begin to step into this idea that our strongest thoughts can be reshaped. That God has given us the power to overcome the battlefield of our mind. That it's because of the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his resurrecting power that we as Christ followers have surrendered our lives back to him because we believe that when the world pulls out the card table, God shows up, right? And we are able to overcome, be transformed, and changed from who we are. But we can talk about this in a lot of different ways. We can talk about maybe the sin that entangles us. We can talk about behaviors that we get caught in. But here, here's what I want us to, to begin to grab before we jump into this. That the battle of our minds may not be sin, but it may signal an illness. And why would I say that? Some of you have journeyed with me over the last few months, and this is what came out of my sabbatical that I have some very unhealthy thinking. I have some things about myself that drive me to frustration and aggravation and it consumes me and it's not healthy. And so we're gonna unpack that. And if you're a guest today and you're like, oh great, another pastor that's not perfect. Hey, we're not that church, okay? But we're gonna let you know that this is a safe place that if you have warts, we have warts too. And we're gonna talk about how God can work through them and how God can change us in those moments. So let's look at a guy who maybe, maybe needed to change a little bit of his thinking, someone who, who realized he had some unhealthy actions living out of his life and they were driven by values and ideas and directions and thoughts of his mind that were off kilter. We're going to introduce you to a man by the name of Paul. We, he originally gets introduced into scripture as a man named Saul. Now, if you've got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go ahead and open up to 2 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, Saul is a man who is kind of going out, and his role was for the religious group of the day to begin to go out and arrest people who were following after Jesus, people who were beginning to join this movement. They called them the way. There was a kind of a, a momentous group that was rallying behind Jesus, and as people were growing and becoming a part of it, it was beginning to transform the known world at the time. And Saul was given the commission to go arrest these people and literally throw them into prison, and many of them were killed in that process. But Saul, this man who's breathing out murderous threats against the church, is on a journey one day and he has a vision that God encounters him, some miraculous moment, and Jesus literally speaks into him in this moment. Now this is after the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus has already ascended to the right hand of God, but there's this vision moment that happens in Saul's life. And Saul goes blind, he, he goes off for a season, but, but Jesus cries out, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul con gets confronted in who he is, and the ideolo ideology that he's living out. And over a series of days, a series of people caring for him, a series of time refocusing where he's literally had sight and now he's blind. He's only in his mind, you know what I'm saying? 
He's just thinking about what has gone over the last uh, few days and the life that he's been given. He eventually gets his sight back and God commissions him to now go back out instead of arresting people to now be the one to lead people towards Jesus. What a career change, right? A man who's once killing Christians is now wanting to compel people towards the movement of Jesus and a major shift has to happen in his mind. One of the churches that he connects with is a church in Corinth. And this is the second letter that he writes to the group in Corinth. And he wants to begin to speak to them, kind of uh, pastor or mentor to congregation and friends. So here's what this passage says. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, starting in verse 1. By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you, I, Paul, who am timid, When face to face with you, but bold toward you when went away. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. Now let's pause there for a moment. So Paul is writing this letter, and he's just trying to say this. Now, for those of you who maybe have experienced conversations about Paul, Paul is usually heard of as kind of a, a robust manner. He's very very specific and, and direct to the point. So when he's using phrases timid, his church is hearing a little more of the relational context of what he has when he's face-to-face, meaning he's not so intrusive when you sit down and have a cup of joe, but when you're from a distance, he has to speak more plainly. I mean, we know this to be true in our lives, right? Because uh, we, when we talk face-to-face, oftentimes we're much more diplomatic, and sometimes our email, we're not, right? Or a text, or heaven forbid, Facebook, right? Some of us speak very boldly on Facebook and wouldn't dare talk that way to our friends face-to-face, right? Sorry, I've gone from preaching to meddling at that point, but you get what's happening in this passage, right? Paul is trying to have a direct conversation of, hey, I, I just want to have a conversation with you. And I hope that we can keep it at this level because there are some of us who follow after Jesus who still live the way they did before they met Jesus. They say they believe in Jesus. They say they have a relationship with Jesus. But the way they treat people isn't very much like Jesus. The way they speak about people isn't very much like Jesus. When they get into conflict, man, the nails come out and they just go after people. And that's not who we're called to be. So Paul's saying that so that he can say this. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. Interesting passage, isn't it? Paul's saying that, you know what, if we have a wrong way of thinking, what we're going to do is we're going to change it by the power of God, and we're going to change it by the power of God until we get that habit, until we get that value, until we get that belief changed and submitted to God. Punishment in the sense of discipline. And we get this, right? We beat our bodies to run in a race next week, right? 
It is punishment to get your body to that point. It is a discipline to get ourselves in the point that we can respond that way. And so Paul is trying to just say, hey, if we're going to change the way we think, if we're going to live as transformed people, if the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus is transformative, it must first be transformative in the people that say they know Jesus. Are we getting what we're saying? Okay. So Paul says, hey, let's deal with it a couple ways, okay? First and foremost, he says, hey, you know what? We don't wage war. We don't fight like everybody else does in the world that we're a part of. Now, he's not just just talking about interpersonal relationships, but do you remember some of the things that maybe Jesus said? Bless those who persecute you. Turn the other cheek. Greater love has no man than this, than to lay down his life for another. That doesn't seem like the world we live in, does it? It's a dog-eat-dog world. Get what you can. You only have this moment. What doesn't kill us makes us stronger, right? We live in a world that when, when pain happens, it's about stepping on others so that we can get what we want because all we have is ourselves. All we have is this moment. And Jesus would say, you know what? There's so much more than just getting your own. And we don't approach life that way. And so when we interact with people, We treat people with dignity, whether they think, act, vote, live like we do, right? We begin to speak and care for people with a sense of value because of who they are, because every person is created in the image of God. And every person deserves to know God, to have an experience with God. But Paul begins to talk about these battlefield points in our minds as strongholds. And strongholds is a word that kind of brings this idea of a military stronghold. It is a walled fortress. And for some of us, it's the idea that we are are locked in by this deception. The card table has been pulled out, and the way that we think about ourselves, the way that we value ourselves, stops us from becoming who God created us to be. And friends, I get this. I take no joy in being a pastor who doesn't have his life together. As a matter of fact, there are nights that I sleep, I don't sleep, because I fret because of how failed and how much I struggle in my own journey. And you can feel like at times that maybe I'm just a a bad SNL skit, a Chris Farley moment. You know, I, I sweat too much. I don't talk right, you know. And yet it's this journey that we're on so that all of us can understand that it's through a relationship with Jesus Christ that we can be transformed. So let's talk about this battlefield of the mind for a moment. Let's just unpack a couple things that I think we need to own as we talk about the ideas of what strongholds may hold us back. And let me first say this. Let's first address God's truth to you versus Satan lies about you. Paul begins to describe very specifically that they begin to attack every pretense, every pretension that's against him. And and that idea is any human attitude or value or idea that forms itself as an obstacle to the emancipation of your own freedom because of the knowledge of God. Meaning God has come to set you free from the life that entangles you. And so for the people of Corinth, what they were doing as strongholds against Paul is they were trying to erode his character publicly. 
They were trying to get people to reject him as a person. They called him a liar. They tried to get people to think that his mission itself was worthless. And how does that play out to us? Our strongholds are vast and plentiful. And most of the battlefields of our life are won on the battlefield of our mind. Things like, I'm not good enough. My past is just too bad. I try, but I can't trust. If I just made more money, life isn't fair. I can't ever get ahead. I can never be close to God. I'll never love my job. I have too much to do. I will always be stuck in a bad marriage. Paul's advice was not just to handle it with a little sprinkle of more Jesus in your coffee or just have a little more faith. It was for us to recognize that it's the power of God that changes us from the inside out. Paul uses this phrase, divine power. That we've been given this divine power to transform who we are. It's the explosive power of God. It's, it's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's the same word that we get the word dynamite from, right? So if we can say this, Jesus is a God who likes to blow stuff up. Can we say that, right? Some of you are like, Margaret, this is the church I want to go to. We're going to blow some stuff up. For I'm sorry, I sometimes might. My mind goes the wrong direction. But Paul says it's a dynamic power that will obliterate the very things that keep you penned in. Maybe it's your view of God. Maybe it's your view of the church and church people. And maybe it's a habit, an addiction, a lifestyle that you wrestle with. And you're just like, I, I, I don't know where I stand. God's divine power has the ability to break into it. And, and Paul says this dynamic power has the, the, has the ability to make it obedient before Christ. What do you mean? Paul's asking us to literally arrest the thought, present it before God, and then submit it to God, meaning bend its will. So let me say that again. Arrest it, present it, submit it. Does that make sense? If you have a thought and a stronghold that seems to entangle you, you can't do anything until you take hold of it. And if you can't fix it on your own, that's where it goes to the judge of all judges. Arrest it, present it, and then you hold on to it until it is surrendered before God. For some of us, that may be a moment. Some of it, it may be a lifetime. Because there are some battles that just don't go away with a prayer. There are. But what thoughts should we take hold of? Like maybe when we think about ideas like, I, I, I don't matter, maybe we have to say, you know what, that's not true. That's just not true. You are made in the image of God. I, I just can't be loved. That's not true. Because God loves you and God has created you for love. I, I'll always be alone. That's not true. Because even today, God has placed you with his people to be in relationship. And we are surrounded by relationships all the time, but it's going to take risk. 
It's going to take extending yourself, putting yourself out there. But God will walk with you through those moments. And today, when we talk about Easter and we talk about faith, what we're really trying to celebrate is that when Jesus died his death on the cross, that power that overcame both sin and death, that resurrected Jesus Christ, that we, we say as Christ followers, that's the evidence and proof that Jesus himself is God. It's the hinge point for all of our faith, the anchor, if you will, that because of who Jesus is, our lives can be changed. And so if we have this divine power, the same, same power that overcame both sin and death, how much more can we overcome the obstacles of our lives? See, Jesus, Jesus made for us the ability to live in freedom, to understand that our sin no longer can be held against us, that we have a, a power to experience forgiveness and to give forgiveness, that we would be loved and would give love. So can I challenge you with this in the battlefield of your mind? Don't stay locked in, but what Jesus has set free. Don't let the card table be pulled out anymore and just say, it's over, but begin to take those thoughts towards God and say, God, if this is not true, then blow it up for me. Change my life. Let me be different. Why? Because it's the truth of God that demolishes the lies of sin. It's the truth of God that demolishes the lies of sin. How do we know that? Well, Jesus was teaching to his disciples, to a group of people that were following very closely to him. And Jesus begins to talk about his teachings, what he's been laying out in front of these students so that they will take that and replicate that not only in their life, but that generation after generation after generation, we would begin to follow after these same teachings because of the generation before us that lived like Jesus. He says, you know, when you begin to, when you begin to understand my teachings and put them into practice and become obedient to them, you will see the freedom that you want. And he followed it up by saying this, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, can I, can I give you some context to that? Freedom comes from obedience to Jesus. And here's one of the great trials that happens in America. We talk about how we, we should just believe. We should just believe. And when we talk about believe in Jesus, we're talking about, in that context, a general hope that it might be real. Somewhere between uh, the, uh, the possibility of winning the lottery or, and it being real, right? I believe in Jesus. Rub my lucky Robert's foot, right? Or we believe in Jesus, meaning we put our trust in who he is, who he says he was, the words that are written about him in scripture. And not only that, do we trust that those are true? We begin to live them out. Jesus says, those who, those who believe and take my teachings and put them into practice, they're the ones that find freedom. So can I just say this? If you believe about Jesus, but don't really know Jesus, that may be why so many of us don't find freedom. We have to grow in the relationship of knowing Jesus. That's the privilege. That's the joy. And so maybe you're up against the wall. And please understand, I'm not just saying, let's just pray it away. What I'm saying is this. Is in the challenge and the struggle of this life, 
in the world that we're a part of, that when we begin to surrender our lives to who Jesus is and who he says he is, we begin to know and learn his word. We allow the spirit to begin to transform us from the inside. Things that once entangled us will no longer enslave us. And we will begin to see a work of Jesus in us for all eternity. So do we want to believe about God? Or do we want to believe in God? Do we want to be the kind of people that blow stuff up and overcome our past, our nightmares, our habits, our hang-ups, our addictions, our broken relationships, our hate for people who don't deserve hate? It is only the love of Jesus that can truly transform us. Can I remind you? Our lives are always heading in the direction of our strongest thoughts. And until we grow into the people that Jesus is our strongest thought, we will find ourselves unsure about whose advice or whose direction or which experience or which relationship or how much money it takes to make ourselves complete. Paul says this to the group in Ephesus. He writes another letter to another church, and he says, this is our prayer. Maybe this is ours today. That I pray that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which God has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance to his holy people, and his incomparably great power for those of us who believe. That power is the same mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. Happy Easter. Let's move to our time of response. Before service started, I was, uh, I was chatting with a friend and I hadn't read any news today. This morning in Sri Lanka, 207 Christians were killed going to celebrate Easter. Hundreds more were injured in the process. Because seven or eight bombs were set off in churches and hotels, people who were going to celebrate Easter. Friends, I can't tell you what a privilege it is to live where we live, to have the freedom to be who we are, to be able to pursue our faith. But sometimes in the convenience of America, we forget our need for God. We're, we're wealthier than most, healthier than most, more technologically advanced than most. And so frankly, sometimes we can gather together and we can make Easter simply a tradition that we do with mom. We can make it something we do to get dressed up and wear pastels so that our wives are happy, right? We can make it about everything except that Jesus Christ, 
being God in flesh, came to this earth so that we might have a tangible example, real life, historic moment where God came and bled for us, died for us, was beaten on our behalf, bore our sin, took the punishment that was ours and consumed the wrath of God in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And the freedom in this moment. The truth is maybe some of us are concerned that maybe our our roast is going to be overcooked. Did I put it at the right temperature? Some of us are thinking about how are we going to get everybody seated around the table? Some of us are worried about, is this guy going to quit talking so I can get there before everybody else gets to Billy Brews? Can we take a deep breath? And can we be reminded that everything begins with this thought? Who we say that Jesus is. Jesus loved the unlovable. Jesus celebrated those who who had been burned out on religion and needed to know God personally. Jesus rolled up his sleeves, so to speak, and he, he, he met people where they were. It cost him his own comfort, his own sacrifice, no place to really lay his head, constantly walking through and communicating, sharing with people, even having his personal space invaded and knowing that even when he wanted privacy, people kept chasing him. Jesus adapted so that everyone who wanted to meet him, know him, and be changed by him could be. And in some supernatural way, when the, when the body of Christ gets together, they call the church the body of Christ. It's because when we come together, We are the physical representation of Jesus. Isn't that crazy? People always say, I I wish I lived in Jesus' time. You do live in Jesus' time. Because this time is the day for the church. For every one of us who believe in the sacrifice of Jesus to live as transformed people. That our warts and our obstacles and our struggles begin to be the stackable evidence that we can say, I used to be this person, but now I'm this person. Jesus meets us exactly where we are to lead us into who we were created to be. One of the beautiful ways that the early church celebrated this, when you read through the pages of the early church, you see these, these convicting moments, these lives that these lives that intersect maybe a crisis or a conversation or a relationship and they say, well, what do I need to do? And with a belief in Christ and a changed heart to the way that they would live, a declaration that their belief is in God, they would surrender themselves to what we call baptism. We have a baptism Sunday that's coming in two weeks. And if you think today's a party, You should be here for that party. Because in a couple weeks, Baptism Sunday, we're going to celebrate uh, people who have been wrestling with their faith. 
Baptism Sunday is not for, hey, let's get our act together so that we can be baptized. It's the day for those of us to say, we don't have our act together, but we know Jesus does, and we will surrender our life. We will put to death the way we used to be. We're identifying with that death, burial, and resurrection. We're saying that it is that power that will raise us from the dead. It gives us new life so that we can be clothed in the likeness of Jesus, meaning God doesn't see us in our faults or our weaknesses, but sees us as his own. And we make that moment a pledge of a clean conscience. Yeah, God, I'll do my best. Yeah, God, I'll give my life, but my pledge is that you've got this handled, not me. My pledge is that your sacrifice, that your death, your burial, your resurrection is to my new life. And if that's a decision you want to make, that's a conversation you want to have, we'd love to have it with you. Because in two weeks, we're going to get together and we're going to blow the roof off this joint. And all of heaven will rejoice as men and women, people who are flawed and fragile will come forward and they'll be buried in the waters of baptism, young and old, declaring that it's Jesus and Jesus alone who saves us. If you want to do that, I want to encourage you to grab your connection card and just mark the mark that says baptism. Give us your name. Give us your email. We'll make sure that you get connected and you get to celebrate that day with us. There are give and respond boxes. There are four of them by the exits and you can just put your card in there. But in just a moment, we're gonna move to kind of a different moment in our service. It's our response time. See, we try and connect when everybody comes in, lots of energy, put our hands together, get everybody engaged with what's going on. And we wanna discover through the message what God's word has to say for us. But now we wanna respond. And there are quite a few people in this room, so I'm gonna give some long instructions so that everybody is clear about how we handle this. In just a couple of moments, the band's gonna to begin to play a song. It's gonna get loud again. It's gonna talk about peace. And the peace is the promise that God keeps. And you'll notice that as soon as the music begins and after 20, 30 seconds go by, you'll begin to see people get up and move in this room. That's normal for us. We move because we want to make this memorable. Our response, we want to put action to. We want to help seal the deal, so to speak, with God. And we want to say, God, in this moment, we want to respond. And so there are three things that will happen in this moment. Some will come directly forward and there are prayer benches in front of the stage. And people will literally get on their hands and knees and some of them will ask for prayer from God. Some of them will maybe shed tears. We have Kleenexes up front. Some of us will, will laugh and giggle with God because we're so appreciative of how God has changed us. Most of us in this room will go to these tables where there are candles. And at those tables, there is a tray that has bread and juice. It is what we call communion, and it is an open invitation to anyone who believes in that relationship with Jesus Christ. 
it is a memorial to us and a celebration to us that Jesus said with the bread, he said on the night of Passover, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. And it was a foreshadowing that it's the death, the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ that pays our price. And so no matter your denomination or your background, But if you believe in that resurrection to be the transforming work, that Jesus Christ and Jesus alone is your Savior, this invitation is for you to come, to eat that bread and drink the juice, both in memorial and in celebration of who he is. When that happens, there will probably be lines that start at the tables. Can I encourage you and tell you it's not a race? Don't feel awkward if you're standing there. Take a moment to pray. Maybe even grab your bread and your juice and step off to the side with your family and just pray for a moment. But if if you choose not to move to one of the stations, we'll have people that will walk through the crowd with a tray of bread and juice and just kind of wave at them. And they'll, they'll bring you the bread and bring you the juice and you can stay right where you are. The third response is this. As Christ followers, we leverage every portion of our life back to God, including our finances. Not because God needs it, and not because we're hoping for an upgrade to an Escalade, but because we believe the sacrifice of Jesus is worthy of sacrificing our own finances so that ministry from this church the empowerment of his people and the ministry throughout the world can happen so that everyone might know Jesus. Some people actually grab their phones because we give through what we call the Give app, G-Y-V-E. They're not checking Facebook. Some of us will go to those give and respond boxes and we'll put our tithes and offerings in there. But in this moment, In this moment, there is no correct order. There is no correct response. But there is the freedom for you in this worship experience to respond how you think most appropriate. It may be just sitting there and thinking. It may be standing and singing every word. It may just be going to the back wall and crossing your arms and taking a moment just to think about everything that's happening right now. Because your current experience is probably shaped by a past experience. And I think God wants to lead you to a a future experience that is led by him, shaped by him, and transformative to you. So would you stand? Would you prepare to respond, whether it's to move to a station or to sing the very song? And as we begin this song called Peace, and the music begins to pick up, may we rest in the confidence that the resurrection of Jesus truly changes everything.